As you look in your program this morning, you'll see our scripture reading, and it comes from Psalm 5. Psalm 5, that's known as the morning psalm. Now here's my question for you. How many of you would call yourself a morning person? Who here is a morning person? All right, put your hands back down, and I won't ask for a show of hands for those of you who didn't raise your hand, who's not a morning person. I used to be a real morning person. I think it was largely because I had a job delivering newspapers in the morning, and what I had to do was make sure that I actually delivered them inside the screen door of every home on my route before 6.30 in the morning. And then um, in high school, I, I was on the swimming team. And on the swimming team in the winter, we had two-a-day practices. That was morning practice and evening practice. And we had to be in the water at 6.30, and it was cold and miserable. But nonetheless, it, it sort of trained me uh, to rise early. And then after I became a Christian, it was not all that difficult for me to meet with the Lord in the morning, as I was encouraged to do by people who were discipling me. Uh, since I have uh, been in the ministry and have so many late-night meetings and visits with people, I'm not always as sharp as, uh, as I used to be first thing in the morning. Psalm 5, verse 3. Uh, pay attention when we get to verse 3. And I will read the psalm to us. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my sighing. Listen to my cry for help, my King and my God, for to you I pray. In the morning, O Lord, you hear my voice. In the morning, I lay my requests before you and wait in expectation. You are not a God who takes pleasure in evil. With you, the wicked cannot dwell. The arrogant cannot stand in your presence. You hate all those who do wrong, you destroy those who tell lies. Bloodthirsty and deceitful men, the Lord abhors. But I, by your great mercy, will come into your house. In reverence, I will bow down toward your holy temple. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness. Because of my enemies, make straight your way before me. Not a word from their mouth can be trusted. Their heart is filled with destruction. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongue they speak deceit. Declare them guilty, O God. Let their intrigues be their downfall. Banish them for their many sins, for they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you be glad. Let them ever sing for joy. Spread your protection over them that those who love your name may rejoice in you. For surely, O Lord, you bless the righteous. You surround them with your favor as with a shield. Now, in the morning, in the morning, what do you do in the morning? Some of you have morning devotions that you use to get you connected to the Lord. Maggie, Maggie Laska, what do you do on, uh, don't worry all of you, I'm not going to call on all of you, just some of you. What do you do first Yikes. thing in the morning? 
um, I do my devotions first thing in the morning. I wake up, I wake, make sure I'm awake, and then I prop up my pillows and reach over to my nightstand and pull out my daily Bible. That's what I've been doing for, I don't know, seven or eight years, so ever since you introduced it. This book, The Daily Bible, I actually have about six or seven of them here. I, I had one large one that I bought for one person especially, but I have smaller copies of this. If you don't have a daily Bible that will lead you through the whole Bible in a year, you're welcome to come pick one of these up today. Uh, Woody, what do you do uh, first thing in the morning? You, you get your devotions sent to you, don't you? Some, of, some on the internet. What, what do you do? I've got a couple. I've got a golf-oriented one. Mm-hmm. Okay. I, I sometimes read The Purpose Driven Life, and I sometimes just get into Scripture on my own. Yeah. And Woody is definitely one of the most sunshiny morning, morning people I've ever met. Uh, John Morkin, what do you do in the mornings? What is your practice? Well, the first thing to do is to uh, go quietly out of bed as quietly as possible so I don't wake Debbie up. Oh, he's uh, so considerate. <laughs> But the, uh, it's been said uh, fairly recently by a, a pretty good theolo- theologian that the, the secret of prayer is secret prayer. And that's what I learned. I, just to be by myself, it's just God and me talking uh, father to son. That's it. Just, just quietly. Great. Christine, what do you do? What's your morning routine? Well, on the days that I work, I wake up at 5.30 and I come down and I make sure Elias stays in bed <laughs> so I could be alone. And I usually have my Bible and a hymn book and my journal, and I pray, and then I read, and then I sing, and then I write. Excellent. You know, uh, if, if you're not familiar, there are some marvelous classics. There are classics of uh, devotional times. Uh, certainly, My Utmost for His Highest by Oswald Chambers has been read by millions and millions of people and uh, I would like to make sure we get that at our books, book table downstairs, just a daily reading. And then uh, perhaps the one that has influenced more preachers than any other is Charles Spurgeon's great devotional called Morning and Evening. Of course, these guys wrote before television and radio, and, and Spurgeon has a morning devotional and an evening devotional. Start the day with the Lord, finish the day with the Lord. Morning and Evening by Charles Spurgeon is a wonderful classic. And then uh, what I like to do, um, uh, I've done maybe 15 times in my life, is Robert Murray McShane has a daily Bible reading plan where you read one chapter from four different places every day. It's a bit of a challenge, but you start in Genesis 1, and then you read in Ezra one, and then you read in Matthew one, and then you read in Acts chapter one, and on four different tracks, you're, you're sort of wandering through an orchard in bloom. You're wandering through a biblical orchard in bloom. I have about six of these. Uh, they, of course, start on January 1st. I put them right here. I'll leave these right here. David says early in the morning... I meet with you, O Lord. Now, the context is that David has a heavy heart. David is under stress. Anybody ever have a heavy heart? Anybody ever feel stress? For David, 
The main problem at this juncture in his life is he had a bunch of enemies. And boy, did he have enemies who made his life miserable. There were the Philistines, the enemies of Israel, and you'd expect them to be his enemy. But he had enemies within Israel. Saul and the tribe of Benjamin were not very friendly toward David. And David even had enemies within his own family. Can you imagine that? People in his own family who made his life miserable. And, and so there was occasion for him to just have a spirit of heaviness. What does he do? Point number one, what does he do? He meets the Lord. What about you? Do you meet the Lord every day? It's really interesting, especially with all these people spreading lies and rumors and threats against him. He doesn't run around the temple saying, did you hear what Susie said about me? Well, I'll tell you a few things about Susie. He doesn't do that. Instead, he turns to God and he goes out of his way to make sure that he goes to God seven times in the first three verses. He makes the point that I go to God, give ear to my words, consider my sighing, listen to my cry for help, to you I pray. And then down in that third stanza, there's four more uh, things. And here's the point. The rhythm of his life is movement back to his heavenly Father, back to the presence of God. The rhythm of his day is to begin in the morning meeting the Lord. And let me ask you something. Do you look at the map before you start the trip or after you've arrived at your destination? When do you look at the map? You look at the map at the beginning of the trip. This is why David starts his day with the Lord. Do you read the recipe after you put the food on the table? Or do you read the recipe before you start cooking? I know, I know. We've been talking about this with the teenagers, and, and I'm, I'm, I am pleased to report to you that many of the teenagers in our church are getting excited about having quiet times with the Lord. And we've been really working through what this looks like in their lives. Um, uh, but, you know, the question inevitably comes up, what about late at night? Isn't it better to do it late at night? And I, I can certainly understand that. You're, you're more wide awake. But, you see, when do you read the map? You read the map before you go on your journey. So it's good to clear your mind and be in touch with the Lord in the morning. David, of course, is a picture of a greater king of Israel. Who is he a picture of? Jesus Christ. And right at the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, boom, in the first chapter, uh, we read very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. What is going on with David? What's going on with Jesus? Well, you will get it if you remember that old quote from Jonathan Edwards who said, it's one thing to know that, sh that honey is sweet. It's another thing to taste honey. What's Edwards saying? 
I'm sure that all of us know God is holy. And all of us know that God is love. Come on, you have good theology. You know God is holy and pure. And there's something wonderful about His holiness and His purity. And you know that God is love in your mind. But it's a totally different thing when His holiness and His love wash over you. And they comfort and encourage you. It's one thing to know it. It's another thing to be bathed in it. And that's that's what Jesus did. That's what David did. And that's what I'm, I encourage you to do every day as we start this year. To wake in the morning and as Psalm 130 says, I, uh, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. Now, I may have painted too nice a picture about myself. You know, it's... I, yeah, I'm a, I'm a morning person, but really, it's a little easier for me, isn't it? You have given me this beautiful office right next door. And I, in that office, I look over Dodds and Eater Garden Center. In the spring, there's all the tulips, and at Christmas time, it's, it's really beautiful. It's, it, you've given me a wonderful place, and I really reserve my, my meeting with the Lord to as soon as I get into the office... So I have an advantage that I know you don't have. And I, so I, you can say, yeah, Pastor John, you're, 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 we're not forcing you to do it at 5.30 like Christine and Chundia does before work. And then, so I may not be a very good example, but I will tell you that I have learned that honey tastes so good. There is something... I, I wish I could share with you the mental and emotional and spiritual sweetness that comes from meeting with the Lord. And, and um, I'd be glad to talk with any of you about that anytime, as would any of our elders. Don Cameron, pouring through the Psalms. Woody Kay, pouring through the Bible. Okay, Elias, pouring through the Bible, memorizing Scripture. They would be delighted to tell you about that. Uh, Bill always has a book that he's chewing on and churning, churning through. We are available to talk with you about how to meet with God in the morning. It's not always easy. Jack Miller, uh, one of my mentors, he would tell this same story every year and as he would tell it, he would laugh till he cried and we would, we would laugh till we cried. It's the story of Samuel Johnson. Samuel Johnson was the great literary giant of the 17th century, highly respected for his massive intellect and his sort of bibliographical knowledge of all the scholars and authors of his day. And he was a Christian, um, but he tried to have a quiet time in the mornings. And in 1738, he wrote in his journal, O Lord, enable me to redeem the time which I have spent in sloth. Nineteen years later in his journal, 1757, O mighty God, enable me to shake off sloth and redeem the time misspent in idleness and sin by diligent application of the days yet remaining. Two years later, 1761, I have resolved until I have resolved that I am afraid to resolve again. Three years later, 1764, my indolence since my last reception of the sacrament has sunk into the grossest sluggishness, 
My purpose is from this time to avoid idleness and rise early. Five months later, he resolves, I resolve to rise early, not later than six, if I can. Next year, I purpose to rise at eight. <laughs> because though I shall not rise early, it will be much earlier than I now rise, for I often lie until two. <laughs> Four years later, I am not yet in a state to form any resolutions. I purpose and hope to rise early in the morning by eight, and then by degrees at six. Six years later, when I look back upon resolution of improvement and amendments which have year after year been made and broken, why do I yet try to resolve again? I try because reformation is necessary and despair is criminal. <laughs> he resolves to get up at eight. Three years, no, six years after that, he writes, I will not despair. Help me, help me, oh my God. And he resolves to rise at eight or sooner to avoid idleness. <laughs> Just goes on. I love this guy. I love this guy because, well, he, he, he stays after it. He's, he's honest about his struggle. You know, Mark Twain said it right. And you, you just need to know this. Even as you try, uh, as you, as you try and do your best, he says, heaven goes by grace. If heaven went by merit, your dog would get in and you would stay out. And that's true. So you don't get to heaven by waking up and having that early morning quiet time. And you, sometimes it's one step forward and three steps back. But that being said, this is a new year. This is the first of the year. This is a good time for you to resolve and not to give up. Samuel Johnson didn't give up. For you to resolve and not give up. That the rhythm of your life will be like David and will be like Jesus and like the mighty saints. C.S. Lewis, he said it like this. He said, the first order of the day is to push back all the noises of the day. I like that. Push back the order of the day, the noises of the day. In your program you, this morning, you have a, a, another handout. Take that out and take a look at that. Follow along with me. This little handout. Um, and uh, Nina, if you would go get a couple more bulletins, and if somebody is sitting here and doesn't have one, would, would you just hold up your hand so that she can put a bulletin in your hand this morning? Because I want you to just look over this with me. That's, the title says, How to Have a Meaningful Quiet Time. Put up your hand if you don't have one. I got this from the great old Baptist preacher, Adrian Rogers, who died a few years ago at the from the Bellevue Baptist Church in Memphis, and he was a great preacher. And so everything was alliterated in this article that he, uh, that he wrote about how to have a meaningful, quiet time. But I always found this helpful. And he says, I won't read the whole thing, but he says, Christianity is not a legal relationship, it's a love relationship. And so he says, I want to give you five factors for spending some quiet time with him each day. And you can fill in the blank. He says the first is the proper period. 
It's all going to start with P, okay? He says you have to find the right time. For David, it was in the morning. For Jesus, it was in the morning. There's nothing that the Bible doesn't legislate it. But again, you don't take the trip and then read the map, do you? See, I got that from Adrian Rogers. Spend time with God. And then secondly, you need the proper preparation. Because a quiet time is fellowship with a holy God. There are few things you can do to be prepared for this. There are a few things that you can do to be prepared for this time. He says, be physically alert. That's what Maggie said. I make sure I'm, um, I'm awake. Get the cobwebs out of your mind. Be aware. Don't wait till you feel like it. Emotion doesn't have all that much to do with it. It's not about emotion, first and foremost. And third, he says, be morally pure and clean. Now, he's not saying you have to be perfect. But he is saying, if you wake up and, and, and you're suddenly drawn to lust and you're looking at a Playboy magazine and then say, oh, I didn't have a quiet time, you can't go have a quiet time right there. Adrian Rogers saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, you've got some business to do with God first. If you wake up and you're thinking of your neighbor and how nasty she is and you are sort of catty toward that neighbor and filled with disdain. Well, wait a minute. And you say, oh, but I didn't have my quiet time. Okay, well, before you go to your quiet time, you say, God, I need some, some attitude adjustment. I need some soul work done here. Okay, so he's saying, you know, you prepare. Um, and, uh, and David, this is very interesting. Back to our psalm. We're not done with the sheet yet, but back to our psalm. In stanzas two and four, David is keenly aware of the sinfulness of man and the holiness of God. And he, he is prepared for going into God's presence by realizing that God hates sin and that God will punish the wicked. It's very interesting. You read a psalm like Psalm 5, and, and some people, you've heard the comment, you hate the sin but love the sinner. And that is certainly true. We are called to love even our enemies. But at the same time, David reflects on something very accurately. God does not just hate the sin, but here it says, essentially, his wrath is on the wicked, on the sinners, on the violent, on the deceivers, on, on those who are bloodthirsty. And he, and he paints a courtroom picture that is coming. There is a judgment day coming. Hosea uh, chapter 9, it says that the wrath of God is coming. The judge of the earth uh, is bringing the day of reckoning. And so David is keenly aware of sin and the holiness of God and the judgment to come. And that only compels him to want to make sure he's right with God. So you need this proper preparation. And then you need the proper place. Now, in verse 7 of our psalm, David says, I will go to your holy house. He's talking about the tabernacle or the temple. Well, where is that? Is that still over uh, across the Mediterranean Sea in Israel? No, not for the new covenant believer. We are privileged to know that we can meet with God at all times and in all places. And it doesn't matter where you are, you can have a quiet time. You can have a, a meeting with God. Susanna Wesley had, I think she had 17 children. And her house was a riot. 
Does anybody know where she had her quiet time? Susanna Wesley would take her apron and stand in the middle of her kitchen and she would take her apron and throw it over her head. And when that apron was over her head, the kids knew, time to be quiet. Mom's having her quiet time with God. And that's where she did it. Now Jesus said in Matthew 6, 6, go to your closet. What did he mean by that? He meant go to some place that's quiet, where there will be peace. If he was speaking today, he would say, go to the room where there's no television. Do you have a room in your house where there's no TV? That's not a bad idea. Or at least turn off the TV. Turn off the radio. Turn off your iPod. Turn it off. That's the place where you can be undistracted and meet with the Lord. Why? I'll tell you why. Because it doesn't take much to distract me. Anybody else easily distracted? So... So I need to eliminate the distractions in meeting with the Lord. And then you need the proper provisions. David in verse 8, he says, lead me, Lord, lead me. And so we should expect God to give us the tools for that quiet time. And lo and behold, here's the number one tool, a Bible. Do you own a Bible? If you don't have a Bible that's readable, then today you can get one right up front here. We, we would be honored to give you a Bible. If you say, well, I don't understand the, my version that has the these and the thous and the whosoever wherefores in it. Well, okay, then we will put one in your hands that is, is a readable translation that you can mark up. It's, it's perfectly legal to underline verses and highlight verses and, and make them your own. It's, it, the Bible's not some magical book. Write in it. Mark it up. And then do your soaps. Have a journal like Christine was talking about expecting God to give you something and write it down. And then finally, there's on the back side of this, there's the proper procedure. And Adrian Rogers, he lays it out. He says, get still and quiet. Why? Because down in the last stanza of our psalm, David says things like, in you I take refuge. Before you I sing. We heard someone say this morning, they like to sing in, in their quiet time. And then you receive. You get into the Word of God. And He gives you these questions. Is there a command to obey? Is there a promise to claim? Is there a sin to avoid? Is there a lesson to learn? Is there a new truth to carry with me? And then now you're ready to pray. And you pour out your heart to Him. And you obey, finally, what God tells you. Well, I don't know if that's helpful for you, but that little... A summary by Adrian Rogers, I, I have found helpful over the course of my life. I want to say one more thing about that reality check that David does. You know, I would be misleading you if I suggested that when David is railing against the liars and against the, the violent people that he's going to destroy and cast into hell, I would be misleading you if we just sat here and said, oh, and by the way, he's talking about all those bad people over there. Because if you know your New Testament, you know that in those passages like Romans chapter 3, where the Lord, where Paul uh, from the Lord is making the case 
for the depravity of mankind and our desperate condition, the human condition that needs a Savior, he quotes from all the Psalms that talk about all those bad people over there, and he applies it to us, to you, and to me. And he says, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands all No one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Then the very next verse he quotes from our psalm this morning, Psalm 5, that's all about those bad people over there. And he says of every one of us, their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And what happens, friends, is that the sensitive and honest Christian heart, Christian heart, is convicted of sin. And that conviction does something very good for us. It catapults us. It springboards us to the cross. And we go to the cross of Jesus Christ, the only one who was righteous. You see, at the end of the psalm, blessing falls on the righteous, But the Bible says there is no one righteous except for one who is righteous, Jesus Christ. And we fly to Him and we take refuge in Him and we bring our pride because you see, the, the Apostle Peter says all of us struggle with pride. And we bring our murder because our Lord Jesus Himself says if you've hated anyone in your heart, you've committed murder in your heart. And 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 we bring our deceitfulness and The Apostle Paul says, all people are liars. We bring those. And he forgives us, and then he renews us, and and he makes us humble. In place of our pride, he replaces it with humility. In in place of a tongue that is just critical, nagging, making everybody feel sad and miserable all around you, in place of that, he gives you a tongue that builds other people up and encourages them. In place of stinginess and greed, He works a new generosity in you. Why? Because you've taken refuge in Him who's been generous to you. And you find that now, at the end of the psalm, but let all who take refuge in the Lord be glad. That's what it means. To take refuge in the Lord is not to present yourself in your own righteousness to the Lord. It's to come humbly, acknowledging your need in your sin to the Lord, taking refuge in the cross, and then being renewed. This is the, this is the, the flow of the Christian life. And let those who take refuge be glad. It cycles back to rich fellowship with God. Remember the quote from Jonathan Edwards. That's when you taste that honey is sweet. When you know the sweetness of the forgiveness of sins and the sweetness of the newness of life that comes to you. This is what I want for you in 2012. This is what I want for us in 2012. Rhythms in our life that lead us back to Him again and again and make us glad. That's what I want. You say, oh, pastor, you don't know the heavy spirit that I have. Spirit of heaviness. Well, we sing a song in this church. It goes like this. Put on a garment of praise for a spirit of heaviness. 
Let the oil of gladness fall down from your throne. You see, this is from the, that's from the end of Psalm 5. But let all who take refuge in you be glad. Let them ever sing for joy. Spread your protection over them that those who love your name may rejoice in you. So come with your struggles. Come with your spirit of heaviness. Come in the rhythms of your life. Come to the Lord and put on a garment of praise. Let's pray. Our Father, this morning we are glad to come to you. You have reminded us that that, uh, that this is the sweet, sweet reality, that when we meet with you, you are there, and you are never late for our meetings. I'm sometimes late, Lord, but you are never late, and you are always welcoming us. So, so make us quick to come and quick to be with you, and make this year a great year of fellowship with you. In Jesus' name, amen.